Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is going on, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 88 of Rizzo cast. I'm Steven Risotto, and today we are joined by a former major league pitcher, uh, played parts of 10 seasons at the big league level. Uh, as a right-handed pitcher from 1973 to 1982. He played with the Giants, the Cardinals, Padres, Expos, Angels, A's. It is John Diaquisto. He joins the show. John, thank you for coming on. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Stephen. It's nice to be on with you. So I, I, I first want to ask you right off the bat, I'm, I mean, first and foremost, we've seen a billion dollars get spent on players alone the last few days. <laughs> Uh, I, know. I, I know you were heavily involved with uh, the players union. Uh, it's crazy yeah. to see, uh, you know, how the game has, how far the game has come financially since, since you put the oh, uniform yeah. on, is it crazy seeing all these big contracts? Oh yeah. Oh, oh to be born 30 years later, you know, uh, you know, I, I was one of the first million dollar players to get signed, you know, and uh, that kind of staggered my mind a little bit, you know, when that happened, but God, seeing the, the amount of money that these guys are making today, you know, it all stems back to when we struck in 1981. That's when everything changed. And, you know, and, you know, God bless them for getting what, you know, what they're getting. I mean, you know, it's, uh, I saw Corey Seeger's contract, uh, saw Scherzer's contract, you know, there's a billion dollars spent. And I'll say one thing. I know we didn't want to talk about it too much, but I don't think there's going to be too much of a lockout if you're spending that kind of money on players, right? Yeah, and I was just about to say, yeah, I mean, despite that whole situation, I think the game's in an outstanding place. And I know you have uh, yes. a, a gig with MLB. Uh, how often are you able to kind of keep up with, with today's game? Do you follow it pretty well? I follow it very close because I have to. Uh, <laughs> I'll put it that way. Uh, my job puts me, and I won't get too deep into what I do, but I'm, uh, I'll just say I'm game compliance. And so I do a lot of things pertaining to uh, compliance with the game today. So I stay on top of it totally every day. I have to. That sounds like some secret CIA agent stuff right there. If yeah, you ask me. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. They don't like us talking about it too much. So that's why I have to keep it kind of low key. Yeah, no, but, for sure. Uh, yeah. It is an important spot and uh, it just, uh, it has a lot to do with the aspect of uh, the continuity of the game, integrity of the game and making sure because of all the other things that are going on in the game on the outside, like uh, the gambling and things like that, that, you know, we have to make sure the integrity of the game is in check. No, absolutely. A hundred percent. So let's hop into your playing career a little bit. I know you were a first rounder by the giants in 1970. Um, I, I mean, I, it seems like people forget how much of an added bonus is it to be a, you know, not added bonus, but added pressure to be a first round pick. I think we often forget because yeah. these players that get selected in the draft and then we kind of forget about them for, you know, one or two years or three years and they're, they're labeled as prospects and, you know, they have the grind through the minor leagues, just like, you know, someone drafted in the 19th round. So it's kind of, it's kind of different. So is there an added pressure to being a first round pick that maybe the outside doesn't really know about? 
Yeah, there is. Uh, first of all, when you're a first round pick, you're immediately going to be heading to the big leagues. It, it, it all depends on how fast you get there. That's one of the things. But, you know, the thing that I've, I saw early in my career was there was uh, baseball executives labeling me as, like Buzzy Bavese did, uh, labeling me the next Sandy Koufax. So you want to talk about putting pressure on somebody. That was an amount of pressure on my back. And I, and I said, well, how can you even say that? I haven't even, I haven't gotten into a big league ball game yet. And you're labeling me the next Sandy Koufax. Yeah, probably because I had the stuff like Koufax, but you know, there's other, no one has a crystal ball. And you know, you had to sit there and you'd hear things like this and you'd say, well, maybe I should just go with the flow, accept what it is and not let that pressure affect me as a young player coming up. And obviously I didn't let it affect me too much in my minor league career, it only took me three years to get to the big leagues. Mm -hmm. So, and it's a little bit harder to give up on, on the bonus babies, isn't it? Oh uh, yeah. It's very hard to give up on the bonus babies, but a short story. I think you read it in the book where Harvey Kept was my manager in, at great falls when I first came up and I, I was homesick, you know, in a new place and not doing very well. And, he came up to me, he says, well, if you don't start pitching good, we're going to release you. I, you want to talk about pressure? That's pressure. And, and I, I didn't know if he was kidding me or telling me the truth or whatever, but, you know, I, I went out the next game through a no-hitter. So, you know, I mean, you know, there's ways of getting around it. You know, you just – and then he comes up and tells me I'm going to, to Phoenix for the instructional league. You know, it's like, okay, fine. So I went from – all the way down to all the way up. And that's how the highs and lows are in professional baseball. Mm -hmm. and, and so many baseball fans, um, another thing I wanted to ask you, so many baseball fans are overwhelmed by the legacy of mm -hmm. guys like Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and Juan Marichal mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the Bay Area, Bobby Bonds. So, I mean, you got to experience it firsthand a little bit, walking inside the clubhouse and mm -hmm. seeing those guys when you came up with the San Francisco Giants I mean, what was some of the things that were going through your head? Well, when I first walked in at Casa Grande in spring training, uh, the first guy I I walked walked up to was Mike Murphy, who was the clubhouse uh, manager at the time or assistant manager at the time. And he took me to my locker. Well, to the right of me was a gentleman by the name of Willie Mays. And he goes, uh, Locker one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight belong to Mays. You get that locker over there. So I was lockering next to Mays, but eight lockers in between because he had all his stuff packed in there. But he came over and introduced himself. And it was a, it was a rather funny story because I, I'm a young kid. I'm, I'm 19 years old. You know, I'm, in fact, I'm your age, <laughs> okay? And Mays comes up to me and he says, uh, hi, uh, you must be the, the number one draft pick. Uh, you're John D'Aquisto? And I said, yes, sir. He says, don't call me, sir. You're my teammate now. You call me Willie. And I said, yes, sir. He said, I told you, don't call me, sir. And, I, and we kept going back and forth. But from that point, he walked over, he gave me a box of golf balls. And I opened them up and I said, oh, Titleist. I, 
Oh yeah, but the th they got his name on them. You know, it, it's like, do you play with these or do you put them away? You know, he says, oh, don't worry. I, I have plenty, you know, if you need more. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, and then going off into meeting the older pitchers like Gaylord Perry and Juan Marichal. Juan was like, you know, those two guys were like my older brothers. You know, they really took me under their wings and taught me really fast because they knew they were leaving and I was coming in. And so they wanted to teach me as fast as possible about Major League Baseball and how to how to approach it. And so that that was kind of exciting. And then seeing the guys like Tito Fuentes and Al Gallagher and uh, Chris Spire. Chris was, you know, just a couple of years older than if, if yeah, if that, you know, a couple of years older than I was and he was starting. So I, I, I talked to Chris a lot about how he felt about being in the big leagues at that particular stage. So it was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, getting to see Bobby Bonds and got real close with Barry, you know, you know, and that was a real good relationship between the both of us. And, you know, we shagged fly balls together out in the outfield a lot and, you know, and had ice cream together and, you know, it's just like a big brother type thing. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I was going to ask about Barry because I mean, was was a little Barry running around in the, in the clubhouse all the time? Was I, I know you just mentioned that he was yeah. shagging some balls in the outfield. So how how yeah. much was Barry around that team? Oh, he was around the team quite a bit. Uh, he was always out in the outfield with me. He hung with me, and we would play. You catch one, I catch one. You know, shagging fly balls, and 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 we would have a lot of fun doing it. And it was like he was like my little sidekick, you know, and it, it, it was kind of cool. And, uh, you know, and I, I would just like big brother was taking care of him, you know, and sitting him down at the locker and he would ask questions about baseball and, and a fun, funny story. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, when Miami came to town at, in Arizona and I was working, you know, in MLB, uh, Barry was the hitting coach for the, for the Miami, uh, Marlins. So uh, there was Don Mattingly and Tim Wallach and then myself and then Barry was to the right of me. And I, we're all hanging on the cage talking. And so I turned to Barry and I go, hey, BB, because nobody calls him BB unless you know him, right? So I go, hey, BB, do you remember shagging fly balls in right field with a, a pitcher by the name of John D'Aquisto? He goes, how do you expect me? He started being the angry Barry, right? He goes, how do you expect me to remember that? And I said, well, you better because I'm John D'Aquisto. Oh, my God. <laughs> he started he started hugging me and talking. And then the then the real Barry came out, you know, which was really, really nice, you know, to to be able to, you know, touch base with him again and you know, the big brother aspect you could see was still there and that he remembered. And, and it was so cool. So cool to have that happen. Yeah, no, I I, I, re I personally really wish Barry's hitting coach career would have gone on a lot longer because yeah. that guy has more to give and tips and wisdom than anybody, I think, um, exactly. in the game. And and I know that there might have been some, some work ethic questions, but there's nobody that I personally would, would want teaching my hitters uh, more than Barry Bonds. So I think uh, hopefully he'll exactly. get back into it if he wants to. I know he works with some guys on the side. Uh, yeah, he does work with some guys on the side, which is good because they seek his, his, his knowledge. And, you know, 
I think eventually he may come back. Uh, but, you know, things change in baseball right now. Things are changing. It's a, it's a new attitude, a, a different aspect in the game that, you know, is starting to happen. And maybe Barry's had enough of that. I know a lot of the older coaches have, and it's hard to deal with some of the players. So, you know, it's uh, it, things, things are, you know, if you can't make the changes, you know, you don't want to put yourself in that position, you know, to, to anger yourself, you know, and, and leave a bad taste in your mouth from the game that you love. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Um, so you make your major league debut. Do you remember anything from your debut on the mound? Because I know it's oh, I, yeah. I, the 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 big trend on this show is that they always they always tell me about their debut. Uh, players always tell me about when they got called up. So what do you remember most about your debut? Well, I remember uh, we were playing the Atlanta Braves, and uh, the first hitter that I faced was Ralph Gar, who was a speed demon. I mean, you know, Ralph could really tear it up on the base pass and he was my very first strikeout and uh you know and then I went through my very first home run I gave up was to Dusty Baker in that game and so I went about uh, four and two-thirds innings uh and didn't get the win but you know I pitched pretty good you know for my first outing and Char, Char, Charlie knew I was, I was, my, my knees were shaking when I went out there, you know, and stuff. And, and even though I had the confidence in the fastball, uh, I was exhausted, man. I, I mean, I was totally burnt. And so Char, Charlie came out, he said, you had enough kid, you're gone. And we won that game. We won the game. Uh, I believe it was seven to two, I believe. And, uh, you know, and I struck out, I think, five guys and walked five guys and, you know, but it was a decent outing. But, you know, that was it, it was just to get my feet wet and get ready to go. So but I did a lot better on my second outing, which was against my hometown Padres, uh, where uh, I won a complete game and struck out 11, which was probably my all time high as a starter. So, you know. I, I settled in rather quickly. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah, it turned out pretty good. Yeah, no doubt. And and you talked about fastball confidence. And, you know, in, in those mm -hmm. days, you had the reputation of being one of the, the hardest throwers around. And, you know, I think yeah. I read somewhere where the scoreboard at Dodger Stadium once had you at 102.4 miles an hour. So do you remember a, at a point yeah. in your youth where – you know, you, you, you realized you had maybe a better arm than the rest of the kids that were playing on the field. Cause I know I've played baseball with, I played baseball through high school and I had yeah. a lot of players that, you know, they, they had better arms, they had bigger bodies. I mean, when was kind of that, that, that moment for you where you realized that you could do some things with the arm? Well, I was sitting with my father at a Padres game in San Diego and I was watching the pitchers pitch. And I turned to my dad and I said, you know, Pop, I think I can throw harder than these guys. He goes, you know what, son? You do throw harder than these guys. I said, what is, what's that going to mean for me? He says, well, to be honest with you, this is when he first, my dad first told me. He says, I've had a number of scouts contacting me. They, we've kind of kept them away from you, but they've been contacting me for they're thinking about drafting you. And, and I said, oh, well, that's good. Okay. And then we continued to watch the game. But that's all that was said. Little did I know that I was going to go in the number one 
you know, first round, you know, 17th player overall in the nation. And it just, it worked out really well. But I knew early on that even when I was in Little League that I had uh, a far more superior arm than the rest of the kids that I was playing with because it showed in the winning Rick. I never lost a game. I never lost. And, you know, it was like, I went up against some pretty darn good pitchers in San Diego. Terry Forrester was one of them. Uh, Kyle Hypes, they both went to the same school together. Uh, there were quite a few guys and I beat them all. And right then and there is when I knew I could really, you know, achieve that goal. So fast forward now, we're in 2021 and guys, mm -hmm. I think the average fastball is about 94 miles an hour and, you know, every reliever out of the bullpen is throwing 98, 99 and, you know, yeah. but they don't, a lot of them don't have the location. So they're, they're, they're more of throwers than pitchers. Do you see that, that kind of theme too with them? Yes, I do. Uh, I see a lot of guys getting behind in the count instead of getting ahead, especially the relievers. And when you're a reliever, you need to go out and throw strike one, strike two. You got to get ahead really quick. And but being being a guy that can throw it, you can't overthrow and set your mechanics out of whack because as soon as you try to overthrow, your mechanics go haywired. And I see a lot of guys opening up too much and going into full rotational without any angles in their shoulders, you know, because the shoulders have to be more angled to throw a ball straight in a linear format. And that goes back to my biomechanical background where. I, I can see things that other people can't real fast and pick up what the problems are because I have a trained eye for it. But most of the guys today, the good ones have that. The guys that are so-so, they tend to lose focus on their mechanics and try to throw too hard. Ball comes up, you know, it's not a strike. They walk the bases loaded. They're getting yanked out of the game. Next pitcher comes in. Well, that hurts the bullpen. And I see a lot of that on a lot of teams that if you don't do your job and stress the importance of what your position is as a reliever in the seventh, eighth or ninth inning as a closer, uh, you know, all those guys have to, have to understand their job and what their capabilities are to achieve the goal for the team. And that can really hurt the team. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think falling behind in the count, and we were taught this in high school, you fall behind in the count, Hitters, hitters, uh, sitting own on you. one pitch. Yeah. They own you. They own you. Yeah. And, and, I mean, yeah. the data backs it up. You look at all the data with, yep. you know, guys hitting on two and one and two and O oh and three and one. It's the chances yep. of getting a good pitch to go up quite a bit. Um, exactly. candlestick park. I, I, I have to mention candlestick <laughs> park. Um, you know, I think every fan that has ever gone there, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird because it's a, uh, it seemed to be like a, uh, you know, not a, a miserable experience, but also like a memorable, miserable experience for fans. And that's how they view it. And we know how, how it impacted the hitters on the pitching side of things. However, was it miserable for you to go out there and pitch on a candlestick night or was it not because you kind of had an advantage because the hitter was miserable. So I used a lot well, of miserables in there for you. So I set you up. There's a lot of miserables and you're absolutely <laughs> correct, Stephen. There were a lot of miserables, but we knew how to play at Candlestick Park. Uh, 
we had certain things that we would do. We would take a rubber jacket or warm up jacket, cut the sleeves off so that you had freedom to move your arm. Uh, and we were thermal cut off. So you had still freedom because you had to double up because you wanted to keep yourself perspiring. And in the cold, it was very hard to perspire uh, because it was 36 degrees with the wind chill factor in July. So it was dirt cold and hitters, their hand, I mean, I would bust bats and you could hear them moaning. You could hear them just moaning and groaning in, in, in the visiting club, in, in the dugout. And, and they would get a, a ball that would, I'd saw them off and, and they would go like this, you know, with the bees, they had the bees in their hands and it was just flat miserable. I remember one time I, I, I went to wind up, my hat blew off of my head. Uh, you know, it was like I got blown back off the mound one time. Uh, it happened to Marischal a lot with the high leg kick and Gaylord also. Uh, and, you know, it's like Marischal would tell me, he said, throw in between the wind gusts. <laughs> and I'd go, yeah, well, what if the wind's blowing at you? You've got better breaking balls. Uh, if the wind's blowing behind you, you'll have a better fastball, you know, it, because the wind swirled from every which way but loose over the top of the mountain and over the top backside of from Hunter's Point. You know, you'd get all these different directional winds coming in and swirling in, in the stadium. And it was, oh, what a mess. And you're right. It was flat miserable. And, but and we that, did have the advantage. We did have the advantage. Yep. Yeah, no, 100 percent. I think Willie Mays would have beaten Babe Ruth's home run record before Hank Aaron. He would have gotten to it before if if he wasn't playing at candlestick and if he didn't have to kind of, you know, retool his swing to kind of go the other way a little bit more. Uh, so how, yeah, right how, field. Right, right field was the way to go. Mm -hmm. Wind tunnel down yep. the line? Yep, down the line. So yep. how cool is it to see the Giants kind of unveil this new ballpark in, in downtown San Francisco? I'm sure it's what, 20 years old now, a little bit over 20 years old. And yeah, time uh, goes by fast when you're having fun, doesn't it? It still you feels know, like a new ballpark. I know it's, it's such a beautiful ballpark, you know, and, and, and the, the mystique of the city of San Francisco is still always will be there. And, you know, I went up there for 2008 reunion with the, uh, with the pitchers and catchers and, and managers. And my wife and I had such a great time. It was so wonderful to be up there and, you know, to be with, you know, my old family, cause they were all there, you know, and, uh, my family in baseball, Mario Alioto, you know, is, is, is my cousin and uh, having him there with Carl and, you know, seeing his family and sitting with them at the game, it was, just so good. And then when I wrote the book, I went back up there again, you know, to, to, uh, to do a book signing. Uh, my opening that was there at Candle, Candlestick, uh, not Candlestick, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, Oracle. Yeah, I, I guess mm -hmm. it's now Oracle Park. And uh, it was an a open arm welcome. And, you know, things like that, you don't forget. And we have a saying, once you're a giant, you're always a giant. And, you know, and that stays in my heart. They gave me my chance to be a big league ball player. And, you know, I, I, I did get hurt in 75, but, you know, I still went on and, and produced for, for what we had uh, there in, 
and it was a great feeling to be a San Francisco Giant player. And that park will always, you know, hold its mystique for such a long time. And as well as Candlestick Park did with the history that it had, even though it was in a miserable setting and, and, and just so cold. But, you know, Oracle Park can get that way too, which brings back memories of the old Candlestick, you know. It can get a little, little testy on you also. I was up there doing a game for MLB and I was sitting down on the field by the dugout and I was freezing. I was freezing. Yeah, so it, it it has its way of haunting you back with touches of Candlestick Park in the background. <laughs> Dang, it's part of the tradition. It is part of the tradition. Yeah, it is. It uh, is. And, and it's in San Francisco. No, I mean, I'm completely shading the 49ers on this one because they, they got out yeah. of it. They moved to the nice area down there in Santa Clara, 40 miles yeah. south of San Francisco. They got the easy way out of it. You know, Giants, yeah, Giants are in San Francisco. They got a ballpark in there, so kudos to them um and i think i got your book in the ballpark uh, at the at the ballpark in the one of the team stores so i think they were yeah yeah they were selling it up there yep yeah and and is it signed is it signed Uh, it should be i think i signed a bunch of them i don't know i'd have to check front front page front page front page it is not signed Okay. Well, then you got, the, people, you got yeah, the I'll second have, the second edition that came in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll have I'll have to have my agent speak to. No, just kidding. I don't have any agents. <laughs> <laughs> just send um, it to me. I'll sign it for you. No <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So in the book, you you had a really awesome story, and I want you to kind of tell it here uh, about Bob Gibson. You had a great oh, yeah. run in with Bob Gibson. You have to tell the story. It's outstanding. Oh yeah, Bob. Bob and I. Uh, Bob's last year in in '74. Uh, we pitched against each other twice, and the first game was in St. Louis, and uh, Bob gave up five runs in the first inning. They didn't take him out of the game because he, if he was going to pitch, he was going to go all the way. That was Gibby's way of doing things. Well, I go out the bottom half of the first and I give up four runs. Well, the next inning coming out, I threw a curveball to Gibby when he was leading off, knocked him on his can. He looked at me like he wanted to kill me. And so the next inning, I, I came out on the bottom side. I got to hit off of him. First pitch was at my head. And I literally felt it. I don't even know how I got out of the way, but I just threw my legs out from underneath myself and fell down to the ground. And my helmet came off of my head when I got out from underneath so fast. The ball hit the helmet. Didn't hit me, but it hit the helmet. And it cracked the helmet almost in half. So I had to get a new helmet, go back up to plate. And very next pitch he throws me, I line it up the middle right past his ear. I get a base hit. Well, this goes on for seven, eight innings. Now we're going back and forth. Score hasn't changed, still five to four. Go all the way to the end. He's knocking me down. I'm knocking him down. And it's like, we are not liking each other at all. And no one did anything to us. They just let us go at it. So I end up 
at the end of the game, I win five to four. The end of the game, there's a back elevator that uh, you can go out of Bush Stadium and you know go back to the hotel. It's a short, shorter area to go back to, to the Marriott. And I get into that elevator and who's in the corner? Gibby, like my luck. So he's in one corner, I'm in the other corner. And I'm, a, I'm 21 years old, my God, come on. You know, I'm still polite, you know, to, to, to a certain degree, right? So I wanted to break the ice, just test the water a little bit. And I said, uh, nice game, Gibby. He promptly told me, dropped an F-bomb, you know, F-you. And I said, F-me? What? F-you. And we F-you to each other back and forth. And then I walked up to him and I said, you know, no one's ever talked to me like that. You have no right to talk to me. He pushed me. I grabbed his arm and spun him. And he went down on the ground and took me with him. And, you know, we were trying to do this, but we both had each other's arms, so we couldn't really punch each other. We were just kind of wrestling, and the elevator door opened, and we fell out. And there were my teammates there, so they dove in and tried to break it up, and, and he's screaming at me, and I'm screaming at him, and I'll see you next time. I'll see you at our park next day, and we're just yelling and screaming at each other, and next game, boy, sure enough. We, we locked horns again, all the way to the very last inning. He beat me two to one on two unearned runs. And really just, I had him one to nothing going into the ninth. Oh, broke my heart. You know, I wanted to beat him twice, but you know, anyway, I got knocked down again and so did he. <laughs> the best part about that is you said, I'm 21 years old. I'm still polite as if something will change later in your career where you won't be. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, whoa, go figure, you know? Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, and then it's <laughs> an unbelievable story. And if, if you guys haven't already read the book, there's more of those stories uh, definitely involved. Uh, so yeah. when you started to have the elbow pain towards the end of your career with the Giants, did did you have any worries about, you know, getting any kind of surgical procedure? I know you were one of the first to kind of have the, maybe Tommy not, John. Yeah, yeah, Tommy John. Was, was, was there any doubt? A lot of doubt because uh, I hadn't heard of anything going on. I had uh, mumblings. Uh, a couple of the older pitchers were telling me that like Tom Bradley and Jim Barr, because Jim, Jim was from USC you know, and, and he had heard about this procedure called Tommy John surgery because Tommy John had 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 the surgery. And he says that it looks like, you know, you might have that problem. But, you know, when I had the uh, Dr. Campbell check my arm out, I could not straighten my arm out. I just got done beating the Cincinnati Reds. I thought I was going to win 25 games this, you know, because I'm going out knocking the reds down with no problem, no problem at all. All of a sudden I can't even move my arm. So Campbell checks me out at Stanford. They take some x-rays, uh, not good, not good. I snapped my ulna collateral ligament from the elbow. It frayed out like this, it was just frayed. Um, he says, I'm gonna send you to a specialist in Los Angeles 
by the name of Dr. Robert Curlin and Frank Job. They're doing a procedure down there called ulnar collateral ligament replacement surgery, and they are going to take you from here. And so I flew down to LA and I met Dr. Curlin and doc, Dr. Joe both. And guess who was sitting in the office? Tommy John. And also Pat Riley, both. I, I knew Pat Riley from, you know, early on. And, uh, but I knew Tommy from pitching, you know, and uh, against him. And they were in there to give me support. And the doc goes, Frank and Curlin, both two characters, by the way, they could have been a stand-up comedy act if they wanted to be. But uh, making light of the situation, uh, they told me what was going on and they said that they were gonna perform uh, the Tommy John surgery on me. And, and I said, well, how's that work? Well, we're gonna reset your ulna nerve and then we're gonna take your ulna collateral ligament and see if we can retach it or take it out and put in a new ligament. And I said, oh, well, do what you got to do. He says, do you have a job? And I said, uh, yes, I do. Uh, in fact, I work for Bank of America. And he says, good, you probably make more working for Bank of America than you are playing baseball. Is that correct? I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I'm okay financially, so don't worry about that. Well, they put me under the knife and uh, uh, they were able to repair my arm. And so I was number two. And then uh, right after me was Brent Strong. He was number three. And there's always been that discussion of who was number two, who was number three. Well, I was right after Tommy John. I know that because he was sitting right there when I had when, before I had it done. And uh, you know, it took me four months to come back that year. Wow. Four months. Mm -hmm. Go figure now. And we had no physical therapy, but what I thought might be best for me, which was squeezing a squash ball first because they're a little harder. And then uh, I went to a, 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 first I went to a racquetball and then a squash ball and then a tennis ball. And then I had the grips where I was squeezing the grip. So I was strengthening up my forearm because that was the area that needed to be strengthened. And then I started playing catch with the wall out and, uh, at Candlestick Park in right field, just throwing a baseball up against it. And I was able to build my arm up and I stayed in really good shape by running a lot. And I was able to come back relatively fast. And I went and broke the adhesions because they told me to do that. And I, just drew as hard as I could up against the concrete wall at Candlestick and I uh, put a dent in the wall. And I said, well, uh, that's pretty impressive. And uh, coaches came over and thought same thing I did and uh, called up doc Dr. Job and told him what happened. He says, well, give it a week and you, know, you can come back and pitch if you feel okay. But you know, nothing heavy, just you know, light. They activated me in one week. I was back pitching again. And uh, I, after that, I didn't have very many problems at all until the very end of my career. I had some bone chips, but that was about it. But still, I went back and played in 89 to 90. 
uh, in the senior league, and I was still in 96, 97, Roger Craig signed me to a contract. Yeah, but he wanted me to go to San Jose for AAA, and I that's when I retired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, th- those guys in the adult league were probably traumatized. They've never seen 90, 96, 97. Yeah, yeah, they were traumatized. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think with, with the modern-day medicine and maybe all the operations, are they're more advanced than ever because they're more frequent than ever? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you played your last game at 30 years old. I mean, do you think if you played in today's game, your career might have been a little bit longer? Uh, definitely. Definitely. I, I still believe that uh, there was a total misconception of, about me, period, uh, about that I was damaged goods and because of the arm surgery and everything. And in this day and age, I don't think that would have happened because I proved I wasn't by coming back in the senior league and getting signed again and going five and four with five saves. I mean, I was like 10 and four, you know, and you know, you come back and at 39 years old, still throwing 97, you know, that's pretty impressive to be able to do that. You know, it's just, it's all, you got to get past the political part of it and the aspect and getting labeled, you know, differently uh, about certain things about you. So you got to get past that. But nowadays that wouldn't have happened. I probably would have been pitching until I was 40. I could guarantee it wouldn't have happened because Noah Syndergaard just signed a deal with the angels and he got one year, $21 million and he's thrown two innings in two years. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, because pitching is such a commodity right now, Steven, you know, that you, things like that are going to happen. They'll, they'll take a risk on, on a guy who's had a good, good track record as a pitcher and they'll think that he can come back like Verlander, same situation. Who, who knows what Verlander is going to do? You know, we'll see what happens there. But, you know, it's uh, you get guys that have experience pitching in the big leagues. You'll take a chance on them, even though they've had Tommy John. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And uh, just kind of getting back into your career, when you were traded to San Diego in, in 1977, your San Diego guy, hometown kid, how exciting was that for you to return to the place that uh, you called home? It was icing on the cake. I'll put it that way. You know, to be able to, I wanted to play for the Padres to begin with. Okay. And they, they were supposed to draft me on the second round, but they ended up taking Mike Ivy in the first round. Well, ironically, Ivy went to San Francisco and I went to San Diego. So it worked out pretty good. That's how it originally was planned to be. And being able to come home and mom and dad at the game and my sister, my brother, all my cousins would come to the games. I had to leave 150 tickets a game practically, you know, every time. And, you know, the phone was just ringing off the hook. Can you give me tickets? Can you give me tickets? And, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll take care of it. I had to write this stuff down. I needed an assistant for crying out loud. But I did pitch in about 100 ball games so they got to see me quite a bit when I was in San Diego in fact for the four years I was there I probably had four of my best years in baseball was pitching for the Padres mm-hmm. yeah it's the cousin that you never hear from <laughs> finally out of nowhere hey can I get some tickets you know? <laughs> yeah exactly that was exactly it who is this you know yeah. <laughs> I'm your fourth cousin yeah, yeah okay fine 
You sure. talked to me once in high school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got it. You know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and I, I do want to skip to your your post career, and, and you battled through some some personal struggles after your playing right. career. I know you built a really successful financial business and found yourself, you know, serving four years for fraud allegations. How did those kind of four years shape the man that you are today? Because you did go deep into it in your book. Yeah, I did. And the reason is, is that it is the, the persona non grata, I, I would say, that changed my life into realizing that trusting people is so important and building trust is important to others. And it was very difficult for me when that happened with those allegations coming out and having to fight for my life to show that I really didn't do anything that I was set up and how people didn't believe that. And yet I never had anything prior happen. You know, it's like there was a lot of money at stake and people wanted it and they wanted me out of it. And that's bottom line what happened. And having to fight back for yourself, it really changed my character and humbled me to the point of being a, a person that was more aware of his surroundings, more aware of the people he hung around with. Uh, I knew a bullshit story when it came across now, instead of before I didn't. Uh, I got beat up mentally, not physically. I handled myself well. I became a firefighter. I went back to school. I got my doctorate degree uh, in biomechanics. Uh, a lot of things turned in because I made them turn that way, because I put myself in a position to say, all right, John, it's time to make something of yourself and to go, go forward, not backwards. And, you know, change, change your person, change who you are, but keep knowing where you grew up and don't forget where you grew up and don't forget the family who was around you. Those things kept me going and I was finally able, I still have, there's remnants of things, Stephen, that, you know, people will bring up things from the past and I'm pretty well calloused on it now, but, you know, it's been, what, 25 years, 30 years almost that that's happened. And, you know, it's like they can still remember it, but I tend to go forward, yet they're still stuck back here. So I, I just give them a nice answer. Yeah, yeah, I had my issues, but you know, I've gotten past it and I am who I am now. So yeah, I think it's tough. A, I think it's a really cool story of, of someone who's continuing on with your, with your life. I mean, a lot of people yeah, after exactly. that would roll over and die. And I think it's a really inspirational story uh, that you yeah. went back to school, so got the true. PhD. Um, yeah. And you mentioned biomechanics earlier, and I have to segue to this. Um, does that mean you understand launch angle and exit velocity? Because I don't know if you know, because a lot of these new hitting coaches have the biomechanic background. I know one of the Giants yeah, hitting coaches, uh, one of the Giants hitting coaches that just went to Texas, Donnie Ecker, had a, a background in biomechanics. And 
was coaching high school baseball as early as like three years ago. So, I mean, do you understand the launch angle and some of the statistics? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, the launch angle swing is what I would call a golf swing. It's a golf swing. It's a set swing uh, that what you're creating down here when you make the approach to the ball creates a launch angle to carry the ball further. Uh, it, the velocity of physics is the speed of the bat, speed of the ball together, multiply it, becomes what the angle of the ball would be in, in the bat, and also the velocity of the ball leaving the bat. So what one thing that you're going to see a lot this year is you're going to see pitchers working higher in the strike zone because of the launch angle, uh, because of the swing, because it becomes a groove swing and that they are so in tune to the groove swing of the launch angle swing that they have a big hole up in the high strike zone. And so you'll see a lot more pitchers working higher in the strike zone because they also understand the launch angle and how, how it works and that there's certain spots you want to avoid as a pitcher. And you'll see that starting to turn. As Giants did it really well last year, did it really well. Uh, they worked the high strike zone. You get an umpire that gives you the high strike zone, that's, that's candy to, to a pitcher. I mean, that's, you, you, that's, that's like free meal, man. You, you just go out there and knock, them, knock it down because uh, you'll get that call. And they can't hit it. They can't adjust their arms higher. Some players can, but not most can't. Uh, you know, Justin Upton's a good example. Uh, if you look at his swing, his very groove swing, he's got the launch angle swing. And, you know, it's, it's not, Hank Aaron once said, you know, John, the ballpark is 340 feet down to right field, maybe 385 to left center, right center, and then 410 to center. All you have to do is hit it 411, 386, and 341. You don't have to hit it 600 feet to hit 715 home runs or 755 home runs or whatever. You don't have to. Just enough. Yeah. Just enough. So you kind okay. of teased it a little bit with the high fastballs. If you're facing, yeah. and I'm, I'm going with an extreme example here, John DiQuisto <laughs> versus Joey Gallo. Okay. Joey oh, Gallo's yeah. at the plate. What are you, how are you pitching him? Uh, first of all, I'm going to get ahead and a, I want to keep away from his power. Joey puts his back foot to the back part of the plate. He crowds the plate to the outside. All right. And he, he doesn't give you much of an inside pitch to deal with, but here's how you pitch Joey Gallo fastball away, moving two seamer sinker. He'll see it. You start it in the middle of the plate. It breaks to the outside he, if he hits it, it's going to be a ground ball, either to second base or shortstop. If he misses it, if you throw the sinker, he should swing over the top of it. Next pitch you're going to throw him is a slider in, starting at the middle of the plate, breaking it into his right foot. Okay? Uh, excuse me, his left foot. Comes into his left foot. The ball will break. He'll swing over the top of it. If he hits it, he hits it to second base only, i.e. the shift for Joey Gallo. All right. Next pitch, up and in, 
round the chest, on the high strike zone side, cutter, center of the plate, breaking in, uh, he either breaks his bat, because it's going to be about 101, 102 miles an hour. Good luck, Joey Gallo. Okay? It's going to shatter his bat, or he's going to pull it foul if he's quick enough. And he is quick enough. You know, he can do that. But he's got that low swing. He's got that launch angle swing. So I'm going to work him up high and run him up the ladder, and he will swing at it. And, but I'm also going to cut the ball. I've got to have movement on my ball with Joey Gallo, or he's going to tank me deep to right center. John DeQuisto one, Joey Gallo zero. That's art that's right it. there. Any, any, any young pitchers listening to that, that's, that's art right there. Uh, so yeah. finally here, before we wrap up, I, you're painting now, and I, I see the paintings all the time on Facebook. See, see it in the background? Yes, I do. I, I do see them. Yeah, they're great. There's two of them right there. <laughs> I always see the one, um, the, the ones of the, the deceased MLB players that, that have recently yes. passed away, and they're amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, I always see them on Facebook. So how did you, you kind of get in the painting? Well, when I, when I went away to, to the Notel Motel in, in the stretch where I had the financial problem, uh, I was going back to school, and one, one of the things that I wanted to do in my downtime Time was learn art, learn how to draw. And there were some of the best uh, pencil artists I've ever seen in my life. These guys were unbelievable. So, so they taught me how to sketch with pencils, number two pencils. So I, I, I didn't think I could do it, but there was something there. And then there was a gentleman by the name of Barry Myers, who's one of my counselors, at, at uh, Boron, where I was located at the fire department. And uh, he, uh, he started getting me involved in painting and doing uh, like uh, cups, saucers, plates, painting plates. And I started, I started sending them to my daughter who's an artist and she sent me a letter back and she says, dad, you're, you're good. So when I got out, I started continuing this because I enjoyed doing it. And so around, I'm going to say probably around 2000, I continued to sketch more, charcoal, pens, pencil, stayed in that medium. And then I had a couple of guys like Gene Locklear, Christopher Peluso, uh, and Dennis, Dennis DeVos, who was the photographer for the Giants when I played, and later on was, taught me how to do things with paint and with acrylic pens. And then I got into digital art, which I totally love. Digital art's really cool. And so I started doing, you know, those particular mediums and, uh, then I started doing the tributes and then I started doing other scenes and the old Europe, uh, Italy, Venice, uh, started really getting into it and developed uh, a pretty good technique. And uh, uh, it's turned out to be a pretty successful thing for me. And I enjoy doing the tributes for the guys because 
I take all the different baseball cards and I put their life together in that collage and then, you know, draw all these baseball cards. And then I'll do a write-up about them because it's an honor for me to do that for them because a lot of them just, when they pass on, no one writes anything, maybe a paragraph or two. You know, we have to know more about the player. So I took it upon myself to start doing these tributes and now I'm the guy that does the tributes and uh, I share them with the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, educational department with Bruce Markinson, uh, I do a lot for him. And uh, it's uh, sometimes pretty tough to do, especially when Mike Sadek passed away. He was my catcher. And that was kind of tough. And then recently, Jerry Johnson passed away. And uh, he was like my best friend. And, you know, Jerry and I, uh, we were like two peas in a pod. You know, we look old, old cowboys and, you know, and riding horses and singing songs, you know. But it, it turned out to be a pretty good thing for me. I really enjoy it. And it keeps me fresh, my mind fresh. I'm going to be hitting 70 years old next month. This, I mean, this month on uh, December 24th. And uh, I, I feel proud about myself that I'm, I'm still trucking along. And my memory's good. And I can recall pretty much anything and everything all the way back till high school. So, you know, I'd say there is no crystals in my brain. I'll put it that way. Yeah. And I think I'm going to agree with your daughter. I think you're pretty good at the art stuff. So keep that up. Yeah. And, Thanks, uh, Stephen. I, I mean, it. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This was this was a lot of fun to, to chat. It was a lot of fun for me too, Stephen. I wish you all the best, and uh, you have a you have a fine career ahead of you, my my good good man. You you're gonna do just fine. Thank you, I appreciate that. And and you guys can listen to the podcast uh, and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, uh, all those fun things, and uh, some more guests coming up soon. Thank you guys for listening. And one more thing time. oh yeah oh plug your book i forgot to do that yes uh, john john is uh, the author of fastball john uh him yep. and dave jordan wrote this outstanding book yep. go check it out i read it it's amazing and my artwork is on artwork by john and you can check out my work there go and check also it out. on facebook yes yep. go check it out look look at me acting all uh yeah, I, I, I'm not plugging my guests, but I'm plugging myself here. What's gotten into me? Jeez. But that's where you can find John's stuff. <laughs> that's okay, buddy. You hang in there. It's up to me to remind you. That's yeah, all. thank you. I appreciate that. All right, guys. <laughs> thank you guys for listening and have a good one.